So we are talking about a magic deeper still. Let me um, just remind you of how we're using the term magic and deeper and all that sort of thing. Magic is just the way things work. And in the story of Narnia, um, magic uh, is, is played with. And so we heard here Aslan saying, well, the witch had some magic knowledge, but she didn't have knowledge of the magic that is deeper still. So the three realms of magic that um, are helping me categorize my thoughts. Um, first of all, there's the ordinary magic of living life. Um, just the way life is, the way things happen. Things like gravity, things like cause and effect. Um, that, that's magic. Then there's deep magic or, or deeper magic. And that's the cosmos. That's sort of the the universe, the whole functioning of all that is. It's time and space. And then beyond that, there is a magic deeper still, which is up in heaven, which is in the back room. How many of you have been in a back room? It's a very interesting place, isn't it? So a few times in my life, I've been invited into a back room. And the back room is where all of the really important decisions are made, right? And most organizations have an informal back room. A lot of churches have informal back rooms. Nobody is appointed to be in the back room, but they find their way there for some reason or another. And I remember uh, one member of a back room saying to me, they really don't know what's good for them. We have their best interests in mind. And that was very benevolent, but very manipulative, right? Because some things should not just be in the back room. They should be on the table. They should be out there. But let's assume that there is such a thing as a back room in heaven, heaven's back room. That would be the magic deeper still. That would be the knowledge that is far beyond the ordinary day-to-day -day knowledge of living life. It would be beyond the philosophical, theological knowledge of the cosmos, of the bigger issues about meaning and purpose and origin and destiny. The back room in heaven would be where the mind of God has made the decisions that will finally and ultimately affect the purpose of God. Before time, there was a meeting in the back room about the death of Jesus. And the witch didn't know about it. She knew that there were some rules in a cosmic sense, but Aslan says if she had gone a little bit farther back before the dawn of time, she would have known that there was a magic deeper still. So in answer to the question, why did Jesus die? I think what we need to do is try to get a glimpse into the backroom meeting in heaven and ask, did God tell us in some way or another why Jesus died? So as we think about the magic deeper still, and we remember it from uh, the story of Narnia here. Let me bring you into the, the scriptures. And here is, here's a, a verse, a couple of verses that's just very strange for us, isn't it? It says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, 
And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. Now that raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? What business does Satan have showing up in heaven? And why does God want to know what he's been doing? And then why does God enter into this kind of deal with Satan? Why does God bring up Job? And do you, when you read this account, kind of hope God has forgotten your name? Or do you want him mentioning you? Satan says, I have been going to and fro across the earth. Why is he doing that? What are his activities? Well, it has to have something to do with, with people and what people are up to because God says, well, have you noticed my servant Job? Now, what we're told about Job is that he's a very righteous man. One of the things that is very instructive about Job is that we're told that while his children are partying, he's praying for them. So if you get nothing else out of this today, if you have kids who are partying, pray for them. Right? Pray for them. But Satan has been wandering around noticing, and God says, well, what about Job? And Satan says, well, you know, that's not fair. Because you've put a hedge around him, and I can't touch him. Why would Satan have any access to anyone to touch them so that God would put a special hedge around one person. And Satan says, I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. Let's, let's make a bargain. If you let me get at him, I'll guarantee you that he'll curse you. And God's, God says, okay, you're on. Ah, that, that's a weird story, isn't it? And the way that the rest of Job unfolds, Job probably being the oldest story recorded in the Bible, um, the story that unfolds is a very strange one about a righteous person who, who is a good person who has no good friends. Because when things start going south for him, his friends all come with theological answers and say, well, you know that if we sin, God punishes us. If we say we're sorry, God relents. You're suffering, therefore, you must have sinned. Therefore, you must repent and God will take away your suffering. Job says, get lost. I have not done anything. And they said, oh my goodness, now you're smug about it. Here's the, the deal. You sin, God punishes, you say you're sorry, and God relents. What's wrong with you? And Job says, I have not sinned. And then he gets on his high horse, and he demands that he have an audience with God and says, if you would let me plead my case, we could get this dealt with because I can show you that I have done nothing to deserve all of these calamities, and they were calamities. Finally, God says, okay, did you want to talk to me, Job? And he says, but before you say anything, can I just tell you that, um, well, at the beginning of things, here's what I did. Now, where were you, by the way, then? Did, did you do any of these things? Could you do any of these things? Hmm, I, I didn't think so. And Job is shrinking. He's wishing he could get away 
from this interview. And he says, I can't do any of these things. You're God. I'm not. Therefore, I presume I have no right to ask you to give an account for your behavior. I repent. And God said, that's good, Job. And by the way, I have some words for your useless friends. And there's the story. What is that story about? Is that in some way or other a tale of the whole human journey, the human experience? Is, is there a cosmic game going on about us? Something's happening up there about us. And Satan has been part of it, and he is at least a player in the cosmic part of things. However he is free to do what he does, we're not altogether sure. But we know that he doesn't know about what God is doing in behind the scenes. So we know that Satan didn't get what God was doing at Calvary. He was totally blindsided by it. Even though he was a brilliant being with a long history, he, he was blindsided by Calvary because he thought that it was his victory. It, it was his purpose. It was all of his activity. And he was blindsided by what God did because not only in the magic or the deep magic, but in the magic deeper still, God had made a decision. He had made a decision about the death of Jesus for his purposes and to thwart the purposes of his enemy. Here's another strange account from Matthew chapter 4. We're told, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then, then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is the third of the temptations. Remember, he was challenged about the stones to be bred and jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Um, and then he's transported to a high mountain, and Satan says, see all of, these, all of these kingdoms? If you will bow the knee to me, I'll give them to you. Now, what Jesus says is interesting, and even more interesting is what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you have no right to offer those to me. So by inference, we're left to surmise that he had the authority to offer those to Jesus. That presumably, if Jesus had been willing to bow the knee to Satan, Satan would have given him these kingdoms that he was showing him. But Jesus, um, he didn't say, you don't have the right to give them to me, you can't offer them to me. He said, you need to learn the fundamental lesson, which is you shall worship the Lord your God, and he's the only one you, can, you should serve. But who is this guy? Who is this being who has the right to parade himself before God in heaven, who is given access to torment people and to try to make them turn against God, who is actually coming after the Messiah and claiming that he is another way that would be an easier way that would simply mean that he would sign the bottom of the agreement and would then get the total authority for the kingdoms of the world. problem was that Satan didn't know what had been decided before time. And he was about to be blindsided by what God was going to do. So let me bring you to a little bit of a technical exercise.
about um, the deal that was made in heaven's back room. So there are theories of the atonement. So what happened at Calvary was atonement. That's the doctrinal word we use. That's the theological term. But what we want to ask is, what made the atonement work? Why was it? You know, the question, was there nothing else God could have done, and why did he do this? So what we have learned so far is that the reason God became mortal was so that he could die. It's, it's an irony. He could not die, but apparently death was going to be utterly necessary, so God decided to become mortal, to become a dying being so that he could die. Because something was going to happen in the dying that was going to deal with the problem. And the problem, as we learned from my friend Athanasius, some of you were asking about him, the problem was corruption. And here's where the, the fine difference between things is very important. Our problem was not that we sinned. Our problem was that we are sinners. Our problem is not the fruit. It's the root. Our problem is not the symptoms, it's the disease. And God could have done something that would have dealt with the symptoms. In fact, that's what he was doing in providing sacrifices. But none of those would have dealt with the disease. Because the disease was in our mortality. And to deal with that disease, in the wisdom of God, in the magic deeper still, was the necessity for God to take our human flesh, our mortality, without the sin that corrupted it, because only then could that corrupting sin be dealt with. In the mathematics of the magic deeper still, it could be dealt with by someone who had committed no sin, indeed God himself becoming a mortal, and dying the death that was the penalty for our corruption to start things over again. So through time, there have been various theories, as we call them, about the atonement. And here they go from really from the way they have swung from the very time of Christ and the early days afterwards. So in the beginning, the most prevalent view of the answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did God become mortal? What happened at Calvary? Um, is what's called the moral influence theory, that Jesus came to show us a better way. What, what we said from the beginning, is it true that the reason Jesus came was to fix religion? Because he did a lot of things that looked like they were simply fixing religion. Indeed, fixing humanity. Here's the way you do live. Here's the way you should live. So the Beatitudes, great, great articles of behavior and values. And so the early days was um, a period of time during which the thought was that the reason Jesus came was to be a moral influence, a better influence in the world. And we know that that is true in part, but it's deficient because the death of Jesus was not necessary to show us a better way to live. He already did that. So there must be something more to it. So as the years went on and the centuries went on, um, a fairly common view of the atonement and a theory about the atonement was that it was a ransom, that the reason Jesus died was to ransom us. And 
what you will quickly see is that in every one of these, there is at least a bit of truth, if not quite a bit of truth. That the answer to the question, why did Jesus come, is not any one of these. It's going to be the one that I supply at the very end. I'll, I'll tell you that. But in part, it's all of these. And so one of the things that we talk about is that the death of Jesus was a ransom. Somebody was being held ransom, and we know that that's us. And a ransom had to be paid. So in one of our songs, we sing that, that he is the ransom from heaven, right? Rescue from heaven, ransom for sinners. So that's one of the things that we bundle into our understanding of what had been decided in the back room at heaven. Now, was the ransom to be paid to God or to Satan? And those who say it's to be paid to Satan um, have their opponents who say it's not at all thinkable that Satan should be owed a ransom. But Satan has some kind of clutch on us, right? He has some kind of claim because he has the right to go to heaven and talk about us, and he has the right to say to the Messiah, if you bow to me, I'll give you things. So he has some claim. And the ransom theory says that uh, Jesus died to pay a ransom either to Satan or to God. The third theory, and this again comes through a few more centuries of the history of the church and Christianity, and uh, for many years the Christus Victor um, was the theory. And it's the one that I like to, to claim because it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds more theological. Yeah, I, I like the Christus Victor theory. You, you can try that this week when you're having coffee with somebody. Right? The Christus Victor simply means that Jesus came to be the victor. He came to win. He came to claim his authority over the powers of evil, and he did so by destroying them in his death. And there's some language in the Bible that is just fascinating um, that talks about him going into death, going and leading captivity captive, and what happened between when he died and when he was raised from the dead because he said, don't hang on to me. I haven't gone to the Father yet. Well, where did he go? And we have old theologies that say he went into hell and he stole captivity captive. He stole paradise out of the clutches of hell and he defeated the powers of evil. Somehow or other, by his death, he defeated the powers of evil. And so Christus Victor um, is actually one of the theories that almost everybody assumes and says, with whatever else we think, this is certainly true that the death of Jesus accomplished um, the victory of Christ. The satisfaction theory was one that was just leading up to the Reformation. And the point of the satisfaction theory was that somehow or other, God's justice had to be satisfied, that there was a legal problem, that God was just and right, and hum human beings were not just or right. And so to satisfy God's justice... Jesus came, and he became one of us, and he took on flesh, and he died our death um, to satisfy God's justice. And again, that is true. It's something that adds another facet, another sort of aspect to uh, the pursuit of what it is that happened when Jesus died. From the Reformation until now, uh, the dominant view about the reason for the death of Christ is the penal substitution theory, the that um, it was, it, the atonement was made by a punishment being meted out. Here's where that has gone these days. There is a whole sort of 
um, push back on it, on the notion that God killed his son. So it's unthinkable to some to say that the father, because of his anger at sin, turned all of his anger on his son and punished him. So that's a criticism of the penal substitution view of atonement. But it has been the dominant view of atonement. It has come along with a strong individualist theology and expression of our Christian faith that says we one by one are so bad that God had to punish us and we would all have to be punished for our own sin except that his son came and he was able to turn around and say, oh, you? You'll take their punishment? Well, good. Here comes my anger. Here comes my fury. It's being poured out on you. And that's in the passages of the scripture, isn't it? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Um, he became sin, that the Father turned from him, and all of those things. So it's been a strong view of what happened when Jesus died. And I think it's a true view of what happened when Jesus died. But is it the whole view? There is a partial view that's similar to that one called the governmental theory that um, what happened when Jesus died was that there was a token substitution made and that there's a limit to those who benefit from that substitution but in essence it's it's kind of still the government still the penal substitution theory a newer one is the scapegoat theory that comes out of the story of the scapegoat from the Old Testament where someone had to be punished and the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat and then send the scapegoat out of the camp into the wilderness carrying the sins. It's a more acceptable penal substitution theory. So it's not the angry, angry father who now hates his son, is killing his son, but it's the God who deserves his justice, um, that something has to be settled, that something has been done that needs to be atoned for, paid for, and so here is a willing scapegoat who bears the sins and is uh, sent outside the camp carrying our sins. Those are the theories of atonement that people have spent years, written books, had arguments, gone to school, and in all of it, you know what I think we have? I think we still have the deep magic. I think there's a magic deeper still that incorporates all of these, but none of these fully explains it. Because all of them are sort of rational arguments. They're, they're all ways that we approach it and say, that would make sense to me, that, that this is what happened. But I think, and here you go, here's, here's the actual reason. The love of God. You think, that's, boy, that's a cop-out. <laughs> How is the love of God the answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? I think we have an absolutely deficient view of the love of God. So here's something that I came across that I'd like to read to you. It's a sort of a longer quote, but an important one. What deal was made in heaven's back room? In a book called Jesus and the Undoing of Adam, a guy called Baxter Kruger says this. The disaster of Adam's sin, the chaos and misery, were met with an immediate and stout and intolerable divine no. I did not create you to perish. I did not create you to live in such appalling pain and brokenness and destitution. 
I created you for life, to share in my life and glory, to participate in the fullness and joy, the fellowship and goodness and wholeness that I share with my son and spirit. And I will have it no other way. It will be so. I think that's the magic deeper still. The magic deeper still understood the need for God to become mortal. The magic deeper still understood the need for the death of the Son of God, for the forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness and correction and healing of the corruption that was the reason for our sinning. But I think we stop at the cosmic level. We stop at the the magic or the deep magic that says, yeah, we're sinners. And so, yeah, it was at least decent of God to do something about it. But the magic deeper still says, no, it, it wasn't just that God was nice or fair or even beyond nice and fair that he was full of mercy. It was that the God, the God of love would not have it that Satan would turn us back to what we came from. So Satan's purpose was to undo creation, to undo life, to bring everything to death. He aimed towards death. Death being the cessation of existence, the cessation of life. And God says, no, you you won't do that to my creation. I did not create humankind to end up in this kind of condition. I will not have it this way. And so the magic deeper still from the back room of heaven said, here's what's going to happen. I will have my creation, and it will be full of life. So rather than cycling from immortal beings with eternal life, all of a sudden marred and doomed to death, God said, I'm going to start it over again. I'm going to recreate humanity, and I will do it through my son, through my flesh. Why? Because the love of God says, this is what I want, and I will have what I want. For us, the incredible good news is that what God wants is beyond our imagination. We're going to get into this as we head towards Advent, but when Jesus prayed in John 15 and 16 and 17 and and taught the disciples, he said some astonishing things. He said, you are going to get to come to be in the fellowship of the Trinity. So what did you have at the beginning? At the beginning, you had a triune God who was perfect, complete, needed nothing. God did not look around heaven one day and say, I don't know, I think we're missing something around here. There's nothing missing. Out of his incredible being and essence of love, he said, to be me is to bestow this experience on something else. So he gave his ministering servants the privilege of hanging out in heaven. I think then he did say, no, we could do more than this. So he created us. And he said, now the reason I made you is because I want to hang out with you. And I want you to be able to hang out with me. Not as an inferior friend. But Jesus says, Father, show them my glory. Let's have it that it's I in you and you in me and they in us and us in them. And that's astonishing. 
that what we are destined for is not just to be forgiven mortals, but to be the very friends of God who spend the rest of eternity hanging out with him. And Satan will not get the upper hand. He was blindsided, and he didn't know that in the back room God had made a decision about us, and he will have it no other way. The future for us is, is incredible. I mean, think of the best that we ever experience, and then take it to the nth degree, and you begin to imagine some of the glory of being like God, with God. There's a psalm, the psalm that says, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? What is humankind? What is man that you should take notice of him? But you have made him, it says, a little lower than the angels. It's a little lower than God. You've made him like almost godlike. And Jesus says, I want to be with you, and my dearest desire is that these guys can be with us as well. I want them to have the fun of being us. It is the love of God that did all of this. And Satan did not get the love of God. He got the justice of God. He got the, the, the vengeance of God. He got even the grace of God, but he didn't get the love of God. Because the reason Jesus came, the reason Jesus died, we'll see, the reason Jesus was raised was because God's love. God loved the world. God loves you. Billy Graham was right. This is all you need to know. God loves you so much, so much, that before anything ever started, he said, I know what's going to happen. Here's my... Here's my workaround. Because I'm not going to let Satan come and steal my glory or steal my work or my purposes. I won't have that. So for our great benefit, to our great benefit, God said, give me some flesh. Let's go and start this over again as immortal mortals because the corruption will be gone. Father, we bless you because whatever glimpse we get of this, it, it just staggers our minds. But it delights us to, to know the magnitude of your love. And as we think of Jesus, Father, we pray, work in us um, such an understanding that it's not just that we get this, but that we long to have him that he is that pearl of great price. And we say we have to have him. We, we have to have him because as we started to listen to him teach and we watched what he did, we have to have him. And now as we see that what you have been designing and working for from before eternity, we have to have this. So Father, give us a fascination with Jesus, what he did, what um, what he told us and what he started so that we, we are like those who sell everything to get that pearl. We're like those who find the treasure in the field and, and say, I will sell everything I have to have that treasure, the treasure of Jesus. And Father, we pray that our, our lives will begin to be more and more and more transformed to be like him and to be like you um, and to look forward to being with you and him 
and your glorious spirit and one another. Amen.